here. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we ask you to send your spirit into our hearts that we can penetrate more deeply into the paschal mystery of Jesus. That means his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And, and we ask this, we ask for Mary's intercession. Pray the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our topic today is Jesus' Paschal Mystery. And that's just a fancy way of speaking about um, his passion, death, and resurrection. Um, and sometimes we include in that his ascension into heaven 40 days later. And then we could also include in it that he will come again at the end of time. So that's what we're, we want to get to today. I don't know if I'll get to all of that. Uh, so it's a lot to talk about. And so we want to say that Jesus' whole life was, in his whole life he redeemed us. His whole life was saving us. But it's the last, the, uh, the last part of his life, um, Holy Week, and then in particular the last day of his life, um, Good Friday, um, and his resurrection is what um, most saves us. Right? He didn't, um, so, we'll, we'll, so we want to say that his, so Paschal Mystery is a fancy way of putting together um, suffering, death, and resurrection. Right? And that is what, um, yeah, we share in. Uh -huh. I just, I forgot what Paschal means. Paschal, it comes from um, the Passover, so the Jewish Passover. So it happened on the Jewish Passover. Jew Jesus chose to, um, um, to institute the Eucharist and then to be crucified on the Jewish Passover. Um, which um, starts, so that would be in our calendar, Holy Thursday evening would be the start of the Passover. And so Jesus celebrated the Last Supper on Passover night. But Passover then would continue the whole next day, and that would be Good Friday in which he died. Right? It actually lasts for a week, the Jewish Passover, but the first day is the... So just as, so there was Jewish Passover, and that was when they left um, Egypt, right, and crossed the Red Sea. And so the night before they left, they celebrated the Passover and put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over their houses. Um, and that was, that's a figure or sign of what Jesus' Passover, right? So instead of having blood painted on a doorpost, um, he instituted the Eucharist and gives us his body and blood to um, give us a share of his life. Uh, but we'll talk more about that later. That's the mystery of the Eucharist. Right? And so, um, yeah, so Passover refers to the Jewish Passover, but Jesus' Paschal mystery um, occurred on the Passover, but is a new Passover, we could say. Um, Okay, just briefly, the Catechism has a section on why was Jesus condemned to death? Um, and um, it's true that the, um, yeah, so what were the accusations? And so the leaders of 
the Jewish people. That would be the high priests. So at this time, the Jewish people um, didn't have a king. They had a king earlier. That was King Herod. Um, but it was the Roman governors who were governing um, Israel at this time. And so that would be Pontius Pilate. And so the Jews didn't have um, sovereignty in the sense they couldn't execute capital punishment or something. That had to be the Roman governor who would do that. But they still had a kind of senate, which is called the Sanhedrin. So Sanhedrin was 70 wise men of Israel, and it was always headed by the high priest. The high priest at this time was named Caiaphas, and he shows up in the Gospels as someone, and we know something about him from, from, his, from extra biblical sources. Um, at this time, the high priests basically, um, they were very wealthy, and they um, were in collusion with Rome to a certain extent. They bought their positions, it seems, with liberal, um, uh, yeah, a kind of bribe. And, um, and Caiaphas was concerned about um, Jesus um, being a popular, leading to a popular uprising. In any case, so Caiaphas um, was maybe was more concerned with the political aspect, the, the head of the Sanhedrin. But other members of the Sanhedrin um, thought that Jesus was a false prophet. And that's essentially what the accusations against him were. And it makes sense if you didn't believe that his claim of who he was was true, right? He basically spoke about him as himself in a way that no one else ever spoke. Right? He said he's um, greater than the temple, greater than the prophets, that um, he and the Father are one. No one in Israel, no prophet had ever spoken like that. And if you think about it, it's either you've got two choices or maybe three. So this is a, um, a famous argument by C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of it. It's called the trilemma. A dilemma is when you have two bad options. A trilemma is when you have three difficult options. So the three options is it's either true what Jesus said about himself, he's the son of God, and we should worship him. Second option is it's false, and he knows it, and that would make him not a mere liar, but somebody who's claiming to be God and isn't. And that would be a a diabolical or satanic kind of sin. That would be a, to be a false prophet. Third possibility is just crazy. Um, but it's, I think it's impossible to read the Gospels and think he's crazy, right? He said the wisest things that anyone has ever said. Um, and so clearly that's out. And for the same reason that he's like the devil of hell, right? That's not compatible with the Gospels. But in any case, that's something that every person has to judge for themselves. And that's why last week we said a key moment in the Gospels is when Jesus poses that question to the apostles. Who do you say that I am? Right? That's really the most important question for any human being. Who is Jesus? Right? And again, we basically have those three possibilities. Um, and so the high priest thought that it was the second option. He's a liar and a false prophet. And if that's the case, then they thought, um, yes, they would want to get the death penalty um, on him. They couldn't do that themselves, and that's why after bringing him to a trial before the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they had to turn him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. All right, and that's what happened. And he was crucified um, as a political, um, yeah, basically as a, um, uh, an insurrectionist was the the thing that Pontius Pilate understood about Jesus. Does the Sanhedrin still exist? 
No, yeah. So after they, um, 40, it continued to exist for 40 years after that. Um, and, um, but then there was a rebellion against Rome and it resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD. And I think pretty much with that was the death of the whole high priestly caste. And the Sanhedrin may have continued for another um, uh, series of decades, but there was a second rebellion in this under the Emperor Hadrian, and um, it was even worse than the first, and Jews were all exiled from the Holy Land and have been in, in exile until 1948, basically, with the, what's that? That was a, about 135, that was the second rebellion under a false Messiah. So someone else other than Jesus, 100 years later than Jesus, claimed to be the Messiah and led the people to rebel against Rome and the result was total defeat and the Jewish people being sold into slavery and deported throughout the Roman Empire. And that was the end of any um, Jewish presence in the Holy Land until the 20th century, basically. Sorry, I know this is really off topic. Yeah. Who is that person? His name is, um, he usually goes by the name Son of the Star, Bar, which in Hebrew is Bar Kokhba. Yeah. Um, and um, so obviously he was not the Messiah. But... Uh, but it's, it's interesting because he's the total opposite of Jesus, right? Jesus pe preached peace, love your enemies, um, not to, um, to, you know, even to obey Caesar, even when Caesar is unjust, obviously within limits. Obviously, you're not going to follow Caesar into doing a crime. But um, so, um, whereas, yeah, Bar Kokhba, um, that, so this is, um, he took the name from a prophecy one of the prophecies about the Messiah is um, from a, um, um, Balaam is his name. He was not an Israelite, and he saw the, um, the Israelites, and he said, I see a star out of David, a star out of um, Jacob. Um, and that's, um, we think, a reference to the Messiah, and th that's what his name means, son of the star, as if he were the one. He's not the only one. There have been other false messiahs, some before Jesus and others after him, right? But none, anything like Jesus, right? Total opposite. First of all, I'm so glad you asked that question because I was sitting here. Um, so in general, obviously mm -hmm. everybody's going to have their own thoughts on this. Do the Jewish people just think Jesus was crazy? Because I don't think I've run into yeah. Jewish people that think he was the devil. You know, they think he yeah. was evil. Right. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really delicate question because there's no good answer from the Jewish perspective. And because his teaching, so there's an interesting, so there's no one answer on this. There's an interesting book by a rabbi. Um, a rabbi um, encounters Jesus. So he's imagining that he was living 2,000 years ago and was present at the Sermon on the Mount and in Jesus' public ministry. And he um, he responds to Jesus, not believing him, but respecting him. Um, so it's interesting. Um, but yeah, there's no good answer because clearly he's not either crazy or the devil of hell. And your third option is it's true what he said. But all right, so I, I was trying to simplify. There's actually a fourth possibility that many um, scholars in the 20th century have put forth, he didn't actually claim to be God. And that was something that his later followers, 50 years later, um, put in his mouth um, in the Gospels. So it's a conspiracy. 
some kind of conspiracy in good faith is the way it's usually put. And it would be that, um, but it's, it's impossible, this fourth possibility. So it, it would be the idea that, um, the, so we talked a little about this, the Gospels weren't written immediately um, after, you know, Jesus um, rose from the dead, but they were written decades later. And so the idea was, well, maybe in those decades that passed, people got some kind of a wish fulfillment. They wished he was God, and so they put those things, sayings in his mouth in which he claimed to be God. That's totally impossible and there, for lots of reasons. But the most important reason is because everything, if you read the Gospels, just about every page of the Gospels is in effect making a claim, Jesus making a claim to be God, and pointing attention not just to what he was speaking about, like any preacher would do, but to his person. So for example, when he works a miracle, a leper comes to him. If you will, you can make me, um, make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. Right? And that's not how prophets in Israel spoke. They said, um, may the Lord your God make you clean. Right? And so Jesus is and he does the same in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said of old that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks with lust at a woman has already committed adultery. So he's, he's basically putting himself on the same level of, as the... And, he, and we could give a hundred examples of ways in which Jesus claimed to be God. And then secondly, it's true the Gospels were written later, but they were written um, during the time of living memory. And that is um, during the time in which there would have been still alive many people who were witnesses. And you can't totally fabricate something during the time of living memory. Legends that don't have anything to do with reality can happen centuries later, but they can't happen during the, the time of living memory. And so even though the Gospels were written later, they're coming out of an oral tradition that would have been um, spoken about always. Um, every Sunday, the early Christians um, gathered together for Mass, and they would have recounted, um, in effect, the Gospels before they were written down. All right? So they're trustworthy. Anyway, yeah, so I didn't answer your question, and because I don't think there isn't a good answer to it. And I think very often Jewish people don't like to think about it. because. Um, but I think they would say that, um, yeah, they would have to say he's mistaken, and... Um, spoke about him in himself in a way proper only to God, but that would make him a false prophet. In any case, there's no doubt that's what Caiaphas thought, and that's why they arranged to have him crucified on the Passover. So the Passover is when all the Israelites had to come to Jerusalem. There were three times a year, there were pilgrimage feasts, where if you lived in Galilee, in other parts of Israel, you had to come to Jerusalem for the feast, because that's the place of the temple, and that's the only place you could offer sacrifice. Right? And so um, the Passover would be a time that maybe half a million Jews would be in Jerusalem. And so if you think he's a false prophet, you would want him killed before the whole people. Um, Yeah. So, it, yeah. So, in this time, in in the time of Jesus, the Jews were. Um, I'm just guessing here. Something like half of them lived in Israel, and then another half throughout the Roman Empire, and even further east. 
Yeah, and so we know that Paul, for example, was from Turkey, Tarsus, and there were Jews in Rome, in Spain, in North Africa. Um, no, so only those who could come, right? So, it, I mean, it's sort of, I guess it's like Muslims going to Mecca for pilgrimage. Um, you, might not, you might only be able to do it a few times during your life if you lived, right, in Rome or something like that. But it would be an obligation if you could. And we see in the Gospels that um, Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his family, with the Holy Family, with Mary and Joseph, when he's 12, right? So he, too, is observing the law. And that would have been a four-day um, hike, Okay. All right. One of the accusations against Jesus is that he abolished the law. But that clearly is not what he was doing. What he was doing was fulfilling the law in himself um, and fulfilling it in more than one way. In other words, he's, Jesus fulfilled the law by living the double commandment of love perfectly as God made man only could do. Right? And he fulfilled the law most perfectly, actually, by dying on the cross for us. Right? That's the supreme act of love, to give oneself for, um, for others, and in this case, for the whole world, for us as well. Right? And so um, by his, his death, he offered the one perfect sacrifice of history. All right? So... Um, Part of the law of Moses was about offering sacrifice um, to adore God, to thank God, but also to ask pardon for sin, to seek the forgiveness of sins. And Israel had tons of sacrifice. Every day there was a lamb offered morning and evening. Um, on the Sabbath it was doubled. And in the feast, like the Passover, it was multiplied greatly. The Passover was the time of the greatest number of sacrifices. Every family had to bring a lamb to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. And there were a lot of, right, since it was a pilgrimage feast and maybe half a million people came to Jerusalem, that's a, a lot of lambs that would have been sacrificed in that one day. But that blood of lambs doesn't take away sins, right? As we know, it can only be a sign. And so Jesus, in his passion, offered something infinitely better, right? He offered himself out of love. And therefore, his sacrifice did what other sacrifices could only represent or um, point to. Um, so, and what I mean by that is a proper sacrifice for sin that would win the forgiveness of sins would have to be something more pleasing to God than sin is displeasing. And the fact is we can't even do that for ourselves, let alone for the whole world. Right? I can't offer something more pleasing to God than all the sins of the world are terrible. And none of us can. But God made man could by offering himself, because as God, he has an infinite dignity. And because as the perfect man, he has perfect love. And he offered himself out of love. And that love is more pleasing then sin is displeasing. All right, so this is why Jesus on Calvary most perfectly fulfilled the law. In other words, he fulfilled the law most perfectly precisely by getting executed as a false prophet. All right, and so he fulfilled all the sacrifices of Israel, but he also fulfilled, obviously, all the moral commandments. Right? Because every moral commandment is summed up in the double commandment of love, to love God above all things. So he offered himself to his father as an act of love and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he offered himself for us 
as an act of love. Right? So Jesus' life sums up the law, but in a particular way, his death. Right? So he didn't abolish the Mosaic law, but he perfectly fulfilled it. Does that make sense to everyone? But he didn't fulfill it in the sense of wanting it to continue in the same way. Because, and here's the reason, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law, the Paschal lamb, all the lambs that were sacrificed, they weren't an end in themselves, we just said, right? In other words, they were sacrifices pointing to another better sacrifice. Once that better sacrifice has come, the obligation to do the figure would pass away. Does that make sense? In other words, what Jesus did was, by offering a perfect sacrifice, he's actually, um, and by founding a church, and we'll, we'll talk more about that later, he's, and the night before he died, celebrating the Eucharist, he's given us a new sacrifice. And so we're not bound by the old sacrifices anymore. And in doing that, he's not breaking the law, he's fulfilling the law, because the new sacrifice is infinitely better than the old ones. The, and, but that, and we're gonna talk more about that later on, but let me just say something about that. And the new sacrifice is Calvary. All right, that happened 2,000 years ago, and can we participate in that? Yes, and that is why Jesus instituted the Eucharist. He instituted the Eucharist to be a memorial of his sacrifice, but a memorial that makes present in mystery the same event so that we can join in offering it. He did the one perfect sacrifice 2,000 years ago, or 1,990 years ago on Calvary, and we're able to join in that sacrifice in the Mass. Um, and that's, in fact, why there's a Sunday Mass obligation for Catholics, is that um, we can join in the one perfect sacrifice. And therefore, the old sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats um, are no longer obligatory, right? And in fact, the temple got destroyed 40 years later, and Jews can't offer them now either. So the Mosaic law with regard to sacrifices isn't practiced um, by Christians nor by Jews because for Jews it had to be, has to be done in the temple and the temple got destroyed. Does that make? Uh -huh. Yeah. I don't know if it hurt the temple, but um, the, um, the veil in the Holy of Holies was rent. And that's a symbolic event. Um, so the veil separated the holiest part of the temple from a, a, the second part of the temple where priests could enter every day. Um, and that's a sign that the veil um, um, kind of blocking access to God has been rent by Jesus' sacrifice. In other words, he's opened a passage up for us to God. But the temple didn't get harmed by that. But Jesus made a prophecy in, shortly before he died in Holy Week, not one stone will be left on another stone. Point is, it would be like going to, I don't know, going to Washington, D.C. and seeing the Capitol building or the White House and saying not one stone will be left standing on another. Um, and 40 years later, that happened. So he foretold the destruction, but he didn't bring it about. Uh -huh. Is that historical or is that just... We don't have, I don't think we have extra biblical accounts of it. 
Um, so I don't think we can verify it, but it's in the Gospels, and there's no reason, I think, to disbelieve it. Yeah, obviously Jesus didn't contradict faith in the one God. So that's also the accusation, right? By making himself another God, right? But the, um, so we talked about that when we looked at the Trinity. Jesus is not another God. He's um, the Son of God, part of the mystery of the one God, which includes a communion of persons. Um, so, yeah, so that would be a misunderstanding to think he's a false prophet because he claimed to be another God. No. Right? That's not what he claimed. Yeah, and I th I'm going to go ahead a little bit, I think. So there were So we shouldn't think that um, all of Israel wanted Jesus' death. Um, certainly not. There were divisions even in the Sanhedrin, and we know that there were some members of that court that, want, that thought Jesus was innocent, and that would be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who um, gave him his burial plot. And so Jesus, the, if you go to um, Jerusalem, the, there's a church there, the Holy Sepulchre, and um, the, the main altar of that church is on top of the empty tomb, which Joseph gave to Joseph of Arimathea, um, a wealthy um, Jerusalem—I don't know—Jerusalemite um, inhabitant of Jerusalem who um, gave his own um, burial plot to Jesus. Yeah, so there was divisions, and but the great majority of Jews just simply didn't know. I mean, they might have heard a little bit by hearsay. Sort of, we might know some things that are happening in politics from um, hearing what people were saying, but it would be very few who actually knew. Um, what Jesus had claimed and, and who he was. All right, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Um, let me just, before I, instead of putting this up there, uh, it's too late now probably, but who's responsible for Jesus' death? Oh. Right, so that's crucial. Every sinner is responsible for Jesus' death because he freely died to save sinners. And so, therefore, um, there's no one who's not responsible for Jesus' death, um, except, I suppose, his, his mother, who never sinned. But even her, the fact that she never sinned was um, something that her son um, merited for her on Calvary. And so we're all responsible. Um, and yes, it's true, Jews are also responsible insofar as they're sinners. And yes, it's true, there was um, Caiaphas, was working to get him crucified, but um, we shouldn't think he's more responsible ultimately than other sinners. And so this was a, a terrible stain in the history of the church, the idea that Jews were um, Christ killers. So my, um, yeah, so I come from a Jewish family, and uh, my grandma, her, um, lived in, um, in Belarus in um, Eastern Europe, and she would remember on Sundays um, after church, it would, that was the worst time because um, there would often be um, um, lynchings and um, with the charge of Jews being Christ killers. Right? And so this is a long, terrible um, part of, of church history. And so it's simply totally contrary to the teaching of the church on the um, responsibility for the death of Christ. All right? So we want to say um, every human being who sinned 
And in a particular way, those who've sinned more are more responsible. So why was it part of God's plan? This is the million dollar question. Let me throw that out there. Maybe take away the slide. Too late. Um, so why would, why would God made man want to um, end up crucified? Why we, so it seems that one of the reasons why Jews don't believe in, in Jesus, um, even though they can't give a good explanation maybe of who he is, is that the Messiah is not supposed to be crucified. Right? A Messiah who ends up getting crucified can't be the real Messiah. Yeah, I, I hear this not infrequently. And the reason is they were thinking of the Messiah as a kind of glorious king like King David or King Solomon um, or a prophet like Moses. None of those got crucified. It's, and especially, so if prophets, now it is true, lots of prophets did get killed, right? In fact, that's a sign usually of a true prophet is that he gets persecuted. So that actually um, goes against this argument. But, um, but that would be, um, yeah, the idea is that a Messiah should be glorious. And it, it shouldn't, he shouldn't undergo the end most terrible and humiliating of any that can be conceived. And it's true, there are a lot of horrible ways to die, I suppose. But being crucified by Romans is certainly up there with the most terrible, and most humiliating. So why would that be part of the eternal plan of God, that that's the way Jesus should die? We've already said part of the answer, right? We said that he died to offer something, himself as a sacrifice. Right? So yes, he wanted to be, he, so we should think, he was crucified because Pontius Pilate tried to bring it about. But much more importantly, he was crucified because he wanted to be. He could have stopped it, right? He's God. He didn't have to get crucified. Just as before that time, when people tried to stone him, if he said, for example, when he said, my father and I are one, people took up stones to stone him, but he walked through the midst because it wasn't his hour yet. So the fact that he gets crucified um, is clearly because he didn't... Um, oppose what was happening with a power that he surely had, right? So he chose it in that sense, all right? So why, why would he choose it? To redeem us. Yeah, exactly, to redeem us. To redeem us by offering something. So here's the key thing. This can be understood in different ways. And, and so one way of understanding it is um, he chose to be crucified so that he could be punished in our place, so that's very often the way it's presented. But um, it seems to me that's not the right way to think of it um, for several reasons. Um, because to be, so here would be the idea. This is, um, very, this is the way Luther presented it and Calvin. Um, that um, Jesus is the one totally innocent person, right? We're the guilty parties. And so he chose to be crucified um, so that there could be a just punishment for sin, and he took it on himself, the innocent one, so that we, the guilty ones, could go free. Very often Christianity is presented um, in that way. And it's not that it's totally, 
that's, that's wrong. It's that it's, what's missing there is a positive. In other words, what Jesus was doing on Calvary wasn't simply being punished because he didn't have any sin. What he was doing was offering satisfaction for sin. What does that mean? So let me see if I can explain this. When we sin, and let's take a, if I do a grave sin, right? So I murder somebody. And I murder an innocent person. Clearly, by doing that, I'm, two things are happening. I'm turning away from God because, and the reason I'm turning away from God is because my conscience is telling me not to do that. And my conscience is the voice of God in me. And if I disobey my conscience in, in the grave matter, I'm disobeying God speaking in my heart. All right? But at the same time, I've, I've shown contempt for his creation and I've destroyed a part of it. And so I've actually done two things. I've turned, let's say, I've turned away from God in my sin and I've added disorder into the world um, out of a, um, an opposite of charity. All right, so what needs to be done to repair for sin? Two things. Everyone who sins has to turn back to God in repentance. That's the first thing. But it, let's suppose I kill somebody, and then I turn back to God in repentance. There's still a corpse there. And I can't do anything about that second effect. I can't bring him back to life. All right, Jesus doesn't do that either. He doesn't bring the corpse back to life. He will. Right? He will in the resurrection. That's still to come. But for now, what he's done is he's offered something more good than all sin is bad. And so even though he's innocent and therefore he's not properly being punished because he's innocent, not guilty, and he's putting himself in solidarity with all of mankind as the new Adam or the new head um, of humanity. And he's offering, so the way I like to think about this, did I use this example of breaking a window? So um, imagine a child um, playing you know, soccer or something and breaks the window of the house next door. All right, what's the child gonna do? The child should say, I'm sorry, right? Should confess up, shouldn't hide it. Um, but he's not able to fix the window. But dad can fix the window, right? And so it's right that the child's father pay for a new window, but it's also right that the son should contribute to that, right? And that could come out of, say, his allowance or something, which is from dad anyway. But it enables the son to part. Isn't that how a good father would, would deal with a situation like that, right? And so we can think of Jesus as our head doing something analogous on an infinitely greater scale. Um, he's the only one who can make satisfaction for human sin, and he did that by offering himself. But here's the difference with the way Luther is thinking about it. For Luther, it's simply an exchange of places. The guilty one gets to go free, and the innocent one gets punished by being crucified and suffers the penalty in our place. Right? And that, there is something beautiful about that way of putting it because it shows right, that he loved us in that kind of way. But um, the problem is um, Jesus doesn't want us simply to go free. Now, that might sound crazy, but he wants us actually to participate with him in offering sacrifice. And what does that mean? To offer our lives with him as something that we can, and that doesn't mean um, getting crucified. It means offering the, um, the daily sacrifices of being faithful 
to his teaching and his law and his example and um, the double commandment of love, to offer that with him. And this is, so this is a huge difference between um, um, Catholics and Protestants, is the idea that we can join with Jesus in making satisfaction and we can, our acts can, can uh, Jesus doesn't need anything to contribute to it for him, but it's good for us, like it's good for that child to contribute. Did I totally confuse you with this so analogy? Yeah, so we can't do that. That's right. That's right, exactly right. But he wants us to contribute to it by sharing his life. And the reason for that is because he's, he can do it, he's put himself in solidarity with us, making himself our head, and we're the member, right? So I'm the pinky, the little toe, whatever it is. And, and so are you, sorry. But um, he doesn't want the sacrifice to be just the head, even though he's the only one who can offer a proper sacrifice. But he wants to accept our little offerings of our daily life and give them a dignity because we're part of his body. And again, this is part of the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, Part of the reason why we go Sunday Mass is because, yes, we weren't there on Calvary. We didn't participate. And we weren't able to offer that sacrifice, Jesus to the Father, and we weren't able to offer ourselves in our daily life with him. But that, I can't go out and do opposite things during the week and then uh, think that I'm offering Jesus' sacrifice with him. I have to be striving, right, to be faithful. And, yes, we can offer our weaknesses in our desire to be made more like him, and that's a great offering. All right? So, yeah, so Jesus... I'm getting ahead of myself here. So Jesus died to reconcile us with his Father. All right? And to offer the perfect sacrifice. And then also to show how we're loved. So reason... Why did Jesus... So back to my question. Why did Jesus die on the cross for us? And... One, to redeem us by offering, making satisfaction for sin. Second reason is to show how we're loved. Right? And again, this is something that non-Christians, I think, can't know, not believing in Christ's passion. That we're, how, I mean, because it seems crazy. How much are we loved by God? That much. Right? In other words, we're loved so much that he wanted to take on flesh to be crucified out of love for us. And so the passion of Christ shows the love of God for us more than any other thing could do, right? More than God, I don't know, taking um, Israel out of Egypt, more than God giving them the Torah or any other benefit of God um, to mankind, all right? Um, and then um, I, another reason for it, um, yeah, those are the two maybe most important, but a third reason is also to show that sin is bad, right? How bad is sin? It led Jesus to be crucified. So my sin also, it, it reveals to us two kind of paradoxical things at the same time, how much we're worth, but also how much our sin actually hurts the heart of God. Okay. Questions on that? 
And it also offers the perfect example of every virtue. Right? Jesus, so Jesus throughout his life gave the perfect example, but especially on Calvary, he gives the perfect example of every virtue, right? Forgiving his enemies. So on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and he's dying for, his, for, those, right, for all human beings, including those crucifying him. Um, and um, so forgiveness of enemies, um, patience, humility, um, etc. But a humility that we can't even think about, right? This is God who wanted to be nailed to a cross. Um, even the, um, so choosing that particular kind of death is a sign that in his death, he's opened, his death is opened to all human suffering. Right? So, he died. so our tendency when we suffer, right, is to go somewhat like this, to crawl up into ourselves. And Jesus, by um, being crucified, is showing that his Death isn't such that it uh, substitutes for us, but human suffering has a dignity that it can be co-redemptive. So it's kind of what I was saying before. So, and why is this important? Because suffering obviously is a huge problem in human life, right? It's the, it's the, most, it's the most common reason why people are atheists, right? Because there's so much suffering in the world. And what's the meaning of it? Jesus, by choosing to die in this way, has revealed something um, that mankind um, simply wouldn't have conceived. And that is that suffering isn't only a negative, but if it's offered out of love, it, can, it is redemptive. In other words, Jesus could have redeemed the world in other ways, I don't know, by science or something, right? Because he had infinite wisdom. He could have revealed, redeemed the world by uh, technology or something, somebody might think. But no, he chose the most from our point of view, useless and despised thing, right? Pain as a way to save the world. Not pain by itself, though. Love and sacrificial love. And that really is the greatest thing that there is in the world, right? A love that's willing to suffer for the one that one loves, right? And so Jesus, by choosing to die in this way, has shown us that suffering has a tremendous redemptive power, isn't just a negative, but is something we can offer for those we love. And the fact is, everyone knows this, right? That's what the soldiers who give their lives for their country, and mothers who, um, you know, in labor, and um, you know, breastfeeding at two in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. That's the most beautiful things in human life are precisely the, um, um, the sacrificial, um, the acts of sacrificial love that make up so much of of everyday life. Yeah. Or think of the end of life when people f feel like they can't do anything more, right? So someone who has serious illness and can't be productive in the way that they were before. What Jesus is revealing is that that illness can be an occasion of a gift, a gift of self greater than the productive person can do yeah. because it's sharing in his cross. And that's the the key point is that the Catholic understanding of Jesus' cross is it's something that can be shared in. And a key text for this is the letter of St. Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24, where St. Paul says he's filling up in his body what's lacking in the suffering of Christ. All right, that seems weird. What's lacking in the suffering of Christ? Was anything lacking? Nothing was lacking on his part, right? But something is lacking on our part if we don't join it to him. Questions on that?
Ah, so those are the reasons for Christ's passion. The night before he suffered, so he knew he was going to die on Good Friday, right, on the Passover. And so the last night of his life, um, he celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples before going to be taken. So he knew Judas was going to betray him, one of his 12, right? And he celebrated the Passover with Judas together with the other 12. And um, in that Passover meal, he instituted the Eucharist. And we'll talk about the Eucharist later. But in effect, what he did was he made his death the next day present the night before. And so he took part, part of a Jewish Passover is unleavened bread. So if you've ever been in a, so my family um, wasn't religious, but we would still get together for Passover. And the one thing we did was unleavened bread, right? It's called matzah. And, um, and so the head of the household would take that, break it, and distribute it at the beginning of the meal. I thought Jesus did that as the head of the 12. But he added something, and he said, this is my body, which will be given for you. And then um, after the meal, um, he took, there, were, there are four cups of wine that you have to drink in a Passover Seder. And he took, it seems, the third cup of wine, and he said, this is the chalice of my blood, which will be poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins, or for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And, and that, he said, this is the, um, the new covenant in my blood. And so, yes, that wasn't part of the ordinary Passover Seder. And Jesus added, and so that makes up the central part of the, the Eucharist, where, G, where the priest does the same thing in Jesus' person. Right? He takes bread, and he says, this is my body. He takes a chalice of wine and says, this is the chalice of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so Jesus, um, the night before, in effect, he made his death present already then and gave himself to his apostles. Um, and so that that would be something that we could also participate in just as much as the 12 apostles. Um, and that's in the Eucharist. We'll, again, we'll come back to this later on. So that was... Um, and what he did the night before. And he did it the night before because he knew he was going to die the next day. And he wanted to be present to his apostles and to us, even though he knew he had to leave in death and ascend out of this world. And so he's present in a veiled way in every Catholic church. Right? He's veiled in, and Orthodox as well, Eastern Orthodox. He's, veiled, he's present in the Blessed Sacrament, kept in a tabernacle or, or other place. Questions on that? Um, there's, yeah, that, I'm sorry, I went way too fast on the Eucharist. But we'll, come, we'll have a whole, probably two classes on it later on. Um, and then let's, um, so what happened after that? After he, he instituted the Eucharist, he went to Gethsemane. Gethsemane, um, it's one of my favorite places. We lived in Jerusalem for a year, and we would go frequently to Gethsemane. Because, so Gethsemane is an olive grove, just outside of Jerusalem, just um, um, right next to the temple and at the foot of the, the Mount of Olives. And um, he went there to pray. That was his favorite place to pray. And he um, prayed a strange prayer that he wanted his three disciples to hear. Right? And they were falling asleep, and he was waking them up because he wanted them to hear this. What did, and his prayer was, Father, if it be possible, take this chalice away from me, but not my will. Your will be done. In other words, he was showing by that prayer 
that he knew what was going to happen the next day. And he knew all the horror of it. And not only that, he knew the weight of sins that he was making satisfaction for. Um, but he wanted to do um, his father's will over his own natural desire not to be crucified. Right? And so he, in effect, consented to being crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's, for me, it's like the, the heart of his passion because it's where he said yes. Right? But it's interesting that the Luke's Gospel tells us that he sweat blood. Right? And that's, and, and I've never sweat blood. I'm, probably you've never sweat blood. But it's something that doctors say can happen in the most severe trauma, interior spiritual trauma. It's the, it would be the capillaries hemorrhaging. And so Jesus' sweating blood at Gethsemane shows us that he experienced a passion of sorrow greater than um, any other sorrow. It's reasonable to think in human history. And we should think of it as it's a sorrow. So he was dying, we said, for sinners and to make satisfaction for sin. And we should think that in Gethsemane, Jesus was thinking about me and you and the whole world and the sins of the whole world and offering himself in sorrow for that. Um, and so, yes, we can think that we're, we were in his mind at that time. Not just in his mind, in his heart at that time. And we can also console him now at that time because he could also see our conversion, our repentance, and our fidelity. Right? It's not just he was seeing our sins, but also... Um, and so I think that's really beautiful. So Jesus consented, and that's when he gets captured. Right? So Judas comes with the, the temple guards, takes him, and there's a trial, two trials actually in the middle of the night in um, the house of um, the high priest and the high priest's father-in-law, and then a trial before Pontius Pilate, um, and then he's led to be crucified. All right? So, yeah, love to the end. One thing about, so Jesus um, being crucified would have... Um, suffered like any other crucified person, right? The fact that he was God didn't make it less painful, right? Rather, we should think he's perfect man. And part of being perfect man is to have good um, sensibility, right? To be sensitive. And so Jesus wanted to suffer, and he wanted to suffer all kinds of sufferings to make satisfaction for all kinds of sins, right? And so part of the suffering was simply physical, but another part would have been betrayal, Right? The betrayal of Judas, the fact that his apostles weren't there except for John on the cross, and um, we could say the ingratitude of mankind in general. Um, but then the humiliation of the crucifixion, etc. I'm going to let that be something you can consider in prayer. Um, but just physically, crucifixion would be tremendously um, physically painful, simply because you die by asphyxiation, and all the weight is on the wounds, um, which were nails, right? And wounds precisely in the most sensitive part of the human body, which would be our wrists and hands. Um, and so the very fact that he's able to speak from the cross, so we talked about that a couple weeks ago when we looked at Mary, right? That among his last words were, um, woman, behold your son. So that gives that a greater power. Okay, 
Jesus calls on us to take up our cross, right? It's one of the most um, frequently repeated teachings of Jesus, right? If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And of course, that would have, to us, we've gotten used to it. But in, in Jesus' time, I mean, that would be really graphic, right? Take up, I mean, they all had experience of people being crucified, and, um, and all the horror of it, right? And so Jesus wasn't just saying, take up your discomfort and follow me or something like that, right? But he was using a real, a, a very powerful um, example that then he chose for himself. Here's the quote from Colossians that I mentioned earlier, right? Where St. Paul says, I complete what is lacking. And each of us is called to do that. Okay, Jesus died. What does that mean? That means that his soul separated from his body, right? That's what death is. The soul doesn't die, right? The soul is spiritual and indestructible. But what, what happens at death is the separation of the soul from the body. And so Jesus died, and that means that his body was without a soul and thus lifeless. It was still the body of God, and it was in the tomb, right, for the three days from um, Good Friday to Easter Sunday morning, um, in which time it didn't corrupt, but it was, it was his dead body, the dead body of God. All right, what did he do during that interval? All right, that might seem like an irreverent question, but um, the, the catechism, oh, and one thing, Jesus took that on, death, to redeem death also, right? He took everything he took on, above all suffering, but we could add all the things we just talked about. He took on humiliation to redeem our humiliations and to give us a, a power to offer them. He took on um, yeah, betrayal, etc. And among the things he took on is death. And therefore, we shouldn't be afraid of death either. It has a power and we can offer it. He defeated death by taking on death. All right, but what did he do during the moment from when he died on, on the cross on Friday afternoon till Easter Sunday morning? And the, cat, the creed says he descended into hell. What does that mean? That's what we want to unpack. All right, so his body laid in the tomb. That's easy. But he descended into hell. What does that mean? So it does not, so let's say what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that he was damned or that he experienced the, the suffering of the damned. Right, so it doesn't mean that. That's a, a common um, Calvinist. So Calvin interpreted the descendant, descendant into hell as he took on himself the pains of hell. But the problem with that is, what are the pains of hell essentially? Separation from God, right? Jesus could not be separated from God because he is God. And secondly, it would be despair, right? What the worst penalty of hell is knowing that it lasts forever and despairing and then hating God because of that. All right, none of that could Jesus take on, right? That's just, he's the utter opposite of that, right? He's the infinite love for his father, um, an infinite union with his father. So we shouldn't think that Jesus suffered the pains of hell. And the reason why someone would think that, though, is what we said earlier about the, him being punished in our place. If what we deserved is hell, it might seem to make sense that he should receive the penalty of hell. But that's not what we mean when we say he descended into hell. What we mean is that he went to visit those who were waiting for him, who didn't yet um, have the full... Um, fruits of his victory yet. What do I mean by that? 
Um, Jesus, one of his parables was about um, Lazarus and the riches. Is that, is that familiar to you? So Jesus told a parable about um, a beggar named Lazarus and a rich man who dined sumptuously, and the beggar, um, his place of begging was at the front door of the rich man, right? And so both of them die, and what happens? That's kind of the setting of the parable. And what Jesus says is that the, the beggar went to the bosom of Abraham, a place of consolation, and the rich man who didn't care about the beggar at his doorstep went to Gehenna, or hell. And that shows us that at the time of, um, there is more than one condition after death, right? Just as we would say, heaven and hell. But it's, he doesn't describe the place of Lazarus as heaven yet. And that's because Jesus hadn't yet re, um, redeemed us on the cross. And so the way to think about this is that those who died um, faithful, in a, what we would say in a state of grace, or um, faithful to God, would have to wait until Good Friday to see God face to face and enjoy the beatitude of heaven. In other words, heaven wasn't opened until Good Friday. That's the idea. And so when we say Jesus descended to hell, he went precisely to open the gates of heaven for all those who were waiting for him. Who would that have been? Everyone who died, I've got a slide here somewhere. Do I? Ah, no, sorry. It's in this other one. Yeah. Anyway, so and what you see here is Jesus trampling on the gates of hell and... Um, who would that be? Abraham. All right, couldn't Abraham would be good. Adam is actually the right answer. He's got Adam and Eve here, um, and he's taking them out of hell, not meaning the hell of the damned, but this and the bosom of Abraham is the way to think about it. A place of waiting until the redemption was accomplished. Um, and there would be King David with his crown, and Moses, and John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. It's like it. Yeah, so purgatory is a little bit different because purgatory involves a being purified. And we could think that you know, Moses was long since purified. He still had to wait. This doesn't exist anymore because on Good Friday, Jesus um, ended this um, waiting period. And so now as soon as we get purified, um, we go straight to heaven. So it's, it's related to purgatory, but it wouldn't have involved any more purification for those who were, were already purified. All right? So that's the way to think about Holy Saturday. What did Jesus do on Holy Saturday? Right? The time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we could see it as a redemptive mission. So during his public ministry, he preached to Israel in Galilee and in Jerusalem. What did he do on Holy Saturday? He preached to the whole world who had died before him. But it, it wouldn't have brought um, people out of the hell of the damned into heaven, but it would have brought all those who died faithful. And that doesn't mean without sins. Obviously, those who died repentant would be the better way of putting it. Uh-huh. So um, okay. Right. Why would they then 
Yeah, great question. And um, we don't know this directly from Revelation. It's more from tradition. But the tradition is, I mean, so what we do know from Genesis, they lived a long time after their sin, right? Their lives was, I forget how many, 600 years or something. But however, that would have been a long time to repent for what they had done, right? And that's the point, that even original sin isn't something that couldn't be forgiven. There's no sin that can't be forgiven if we repent of it. And of course, we don't have the power of ourselves to repent, but God gives that grace of repentance to everyone, but we have to cooperate with it, right? And so it's reasonable to think Adam and Eve, even though they, they did a bad thing, understatement, with huge consequences, which we experience ourselves, nevertheless, would have repented and received God's mercy. Yeah, yeah, great question. Okay. All right, let's look at that. I'm sorry, I got only 10 minutes left, and I want to get to the... Re- to the resurrection. So um, Easter Sunday, what happens? Uh, huh, I'm stuck here, sorry. Um, maybe I'll do this just. This is in, um, somewhere in, um, it's an Eastern Orthodox church, Korah. I'm not sure exactly where Korah is, but I think present-day Turkey. Okay, yeah, so Jesus rose from the dead. This, also, this was, would have been just as much a surprise as a as his crucifixion. Jews were, we can see from the Gospels that Jews believed in the resurrection and the prophets had spoken about the general resurrection. But nobody was expecting somebody to rise from the dead before the time when everyone would rise from the dead at the end of history. Right, so we believe, we can see this from the Gospels that um, Mary and Martha were expecting the resurrection at the end of time, right? But what nobody was expecting is a crucified man to rise from the dead. And so Jesus, in rising from the dead, did something just as surprising as a Messiah being crucified. And in doing so, so why did Jesus not you know, simply remain in the tomb like all the rest of us until the, the end of history? So there are lots of reasons for this. So again, I'm asking a similar question. We said before, why did Jesus choose to be crucified? Why did he choose to rise on the third day? And I think one reason is obvious. By rising, he showed that who he was, right? By rising from the dead, he showed that death had no power over him. And therefore, he showed his divinity by rising from the dead, right? It was part, it was the ultimate miracle that showed his identity as the son of God, right? And it showed, we could say, the acceptance of his sacrifice on the part of his father. So who raised Jesus? We could say his father raised him, the spirit raised him, or he raised himself, right? Because um, he's, insofar as he's man, he was raised. Insofar as he's God, he um, had the power simply to rise. Death couldn't hold him. And then he rose to... um, um, to show that death isn't the ultimate enemy, 
right? That we don't have to worry ultimately about death because we will, so he rose to give us hope in our future resurrection as well. All right, so, and then he also rose to be a sign of the rising of our souls. Let me see if I can explain this. Um, baptism, we'll look at it later, but baptism involves, um, yes, being washed from our sin, but it also involves dying to the old man and rising to a new life with Christ. And that's from the letter to the Romans, chapter 6. St. Paul says, you've been baptized. All right, you died. What? Um, if you've been baptized, you've died to the old man with Christ, and you've risen to a new life in him. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is the sign of something that we're already living now. It's the sign of something that we're not yet living, and that is rising with glorious bodies. That will happen at the end of history. But it's the sign of something that is happening now, and that is um, the new life in Christ that, um, that comes about when we're um, not living in mortal sin, but in a state of grace and sharing in his life. All right? So his resurrection is also the sign of that. Um, what does it mean that he rose? So was it the same body? Was it the same body? So that's a tough question because it's a yes, no. They, so yes, it's the same body. So Jesus rose with the same physical body that got crucified. Um, we're not going right? to... So it, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there are no bones on, in the empty tomb, right? It's an empty tomb because he didn't remain there. The same body rose. But the condition of the body is different, meaning it's now glorious and no longer subject to suffering, limitation, death, corruption, etc. Right? It's a body that fully radiates the spirit. Um, and so this... For this reason, Jesus could appear in different ways and did appear to his um, apostles. Right? So Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appeared first, kind of surprisingly, to Mary Magdalene, um, and then to Peter, and then to um, the two who were on the road to Emmaus. Um, one of them might have, so Clopas and another disciple, they were going to their hometown, and Jesus um, walked with them, and they didn't recognize him. And, um, and they were very you know, sad. And Jesus, what are you sad about? And they said, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? That Jesus, we, who we thought was the Messiah, got crucified? And Jesus says, no, uh, tell me. And, and so they tell him. He was right, pretending to be ignorant. Um, and um, he um, then explained to them, how all of these things had to happen to fulfill scripture, right? So he unfolded scripture to them, and then um, he shared a meal with them and apparently celebrated the Eucharist, and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Right? So that was a, a resurrection appearance. And then he appeared that same night to the, 12, to the 11 in the upper room, and he appeared to 500 in Galilee. Um, and so Paul gives us a list of the, and why is this important? Because Jesus' resurrection is an historical event, right? So it would be totally wrong, and it would be a heresy to think Jesus' resurrection means that the disciples found new meaning in life after Jesus' death. Um, no, what the, right? The resurrection means he physically rose and physically encountered his apostles who came to believe because of that encounter. 
Now, why didn't he didn't manifest himself to all mankind, but only to those who, um, for the most part, who were his disciples beforehand, with one exception, Paul. Right? So he appears to Paul maybe a couple of years later, and Paul um, converts on encountering the risen Christ and then becomes the great apostle. Um, all right, so Jesus' resurrection is an historical event, and they, the disciples touched him, right? And the, the most beautiful story is the doubting Thomas, who um, wasn't there on Easter Sunday when he appeared to the others and didn't believe and said, I won't believe unless I stick my fingers into his side, right? And so the next Sunday, um, Jesus says, take your fingers and stick them here. All right, so yes, a physical resurrection, but a glorious body. And we will be like that when he comes again. Questions on the resurrection? What about all these other people who were uh, reportedly yeah. at that time? That I, that? Right. I can't, um, I can't explain that because I don't know. Um, so, yeah, we don't know. Either um, they um, refer to the people who were in the bosom of Abraham who appeared to some... Um, that's maybe the best explanation, but um, the church doesn't have a definitive teaching on how to interpret that. Yeah, we wouldn't have to believe that, but that's possible. Yes, I don't know. All right, 40 days. So Jesus appeared to his apostles and others for 40 days. Um, and then on the 40th day, he left this visible world with his visible, glorious body. Right? And that's the ascension. So this, too, we have to take to be an historical event. He ceased being visible to his disciples as he was during those 40 days. And this happened in a particular place, and that is the Mount of Olives, right um, just east of Jerusalem. Um, and his disciples saw him ascend out of this world. And that, the way we should understand that is he ascended out of this visible world to um, um, go where his, to be in the presence of his father and the rest of all of those um, just who were waiting for him. Um, and we don't, so heaven has got to be a place. We don't know, it's not an accessible place, but it has to be a physical place because Jesus has a physical body. Right? And we said that Mary, later, a couple decades later, also was assumed with her body into heaven. And so there are at least two bodies in heaven, and thus it's, um, it's a place. And so what is Jesus doing there now? And he's king, is the way to think of it. Jesus is ruling the world from heaven, um, but he's active. And this is maybe what we don't think about enough. Jesus, um, so the... I gotta, I'll see if I can end in two minutes. Um, so in leaving this world, he didn't leave his person. Um, he didn't um, leave us orphans. And so he remains here sacramentally. So this is why the sacraments have such an importance, that Jesus left this world with his visible presence, but he doesn't stop acting in this world and giving us his divine life. And that happens above all, through the sacraments that he instituted, right? The seven sacraments that we're going to look at later. And so this whole time, which is now 1,990 years, from his ascension until now and until he comes again, is a time in which he's not 
visibly present, but he's very present and very active. And we encounter him in prayer and the sacraments. But he will come back, um, and he'll come back um, at the second coming, and nobody knows when that will be. And we we'll, we'll can touch on this in a few weeks when we do the last things. Right? But we're starting to hear about it in the readings in, in Mass. So for example, today's readings, and um, the second reading was about Christ's second coming. And so if somebody knows, claims to know that it's going to be in the year 2034, we can be sure that's wrong. And in other words, we can be sure that person doesn't know what he's talking about because um, we, nobody knows the time of his second coming, right? He'll come like a thief in the night. All right, I'll let you go. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of your Paschal mystery through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.